0: They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book.
1: Hey, before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, You've given us the words in your scripture, and we know that they're true. But Lord, today and always, we also ask for your heart. And so, Father, our nation continues to tear itself apart. And while most of us here, if not all of us, are probably overjoyed at the the vulnerable, the defenseless, and the, the new protections they potentially have, help us also have your heart when we deal with people that don't understand the, way thing, the things the way we do. And so, Lord, we want to love you. We want these messages, this message in particular, to not only have your scripture, but also have your heart. And so for that, Father, I'm just asking for strength and guidance and blessing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. So Chris, uh, Pastor Chris, has done me what we would say a solid in that for the last year, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and I don't know how many of you here have actually read the entire book, but it's a meaty, deep, juicy book. And so Chris saved the really fun part for me. I feel like he, he took the world's most beautiful golf ball, put it on a tee, and said, here you go, Brian, hit it. And so now all I have to do is hit the ball, and we'll see how this goes, right? So if you've been with us for the last year, you would have heard that Revelation is a letter from the Apostle John written around AD 92. As one of the 12 apostles, John was a firsthand witness of Jesus' teaching, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And in that same year, AD 92, the Caesar of Rome was was a man named Domitian. And Domitian declared himself God, demanding that all worship him. Is this a little feedback No? Okay. Every person was expected to go to Domitian's temple, take a pinch, pinch of incense, go up to the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And historians tell us that in the year 80, 92, 40,000 Christians were killed by the Romans, many because they refused to do that. So now, because John was one of the ones who refused, Rome couldn't let this go unnoticed. John was a bit of a celebrity then. He was an old man. Most people knew who he was. And they'd even tried to kill John once and failed. And so rather than try to kill him again and really make him a celebrity, they arrested him and sent him to a penal colony, an island off the coast of Greece, much like our own Alcatraz, but that island was called Patmos. And while on that island, while a prisoner, John wrote this letter. So I want you to try and visualize John sitting on this sandy, rocky island as a pastor. He would have remembered the churches and the cities he had just left, and he would have have had empathy and concern for the flock, the fellow parishioners and followers of Jesus that he left behind. And he would also have been afraid for those people that they would be hunted down and killed like so many of their friends. So Jesus knew this and Jesus sent an angel to John to reveal to him in a vision what we're about to cover. And John wrote that vision down specifically to seven different churches on the mainland, and this letter was designed to give hope and faith and also to let us know that Jesus is trustworthy and true. And so as theologian Daryl Johnson says in his book on Revelation, That letter, Revelation, is not a crystal ball for people to see the future. Revelation is a discipleship manual for how to carry yourself when times are tough in the knowledge that Jesus is coming back. Now, many of us think that Revelation is a difficult book, and it's largely because of the symbology that permeates it. And so John simply wrote what he saw in the visions, but let me propose a theory to you about that symbology. So if you right now were in prison, and every phone call you made or every letter you wrote was intercepted by somebody, by a prison censor, and that prison censor would read it and potentially throw it away and never pass it on, would you write in a way that your, style, that your captors would recognize? Or perhaps would you write in a way, maybe a code even, that only your intended audience, John's parishioners and Jesus' followers understood? And so Jesus directed John to write in this way, potentially knowing that the letter would survive for people like you and me to read and marvel and continue to receive hope. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about the new Jerusalem. Remember that awesome cube coming down? Not going to heaven, but heaven coming down to earth. And this week, as I say, Chris teed it up for me. It's my honor to talk to you what that glory looks like. So we're gonna look at this part of Revelation, which is what John sees about heaven. And so the first thing I want you to know is that there is a temple. God is the temple. And it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So John says, I saw no temple. And this would have absolutely blown Jewish minds. Jews looked at the temple as the most important place in any city. When they traveled, the temple stood out higher than most other buildings, and it was one of the very first places they would have gone. And if they were faithful, they would have continued to go back, and go back, and go back. Because in their minds, the temple is where God dwells. You see, God was said to be in a place called the Holy of Holies inside that temple. And that was the place where God's presence manifested itself in what Pastor Chris taught about last week. In scripture, God desires to dwell with his people like he did in the Garden of Eden. But as most of us know the story, sin entered the garden and there was separation. See, the temple for Jewish minds was a clean spot in an unclean world and a beacon calling Jews to the presence of God, and inside an example of God's perfection and their acknowledgement of their sin. So when it says in that scripture, I saw no temple, what it doesn't say is that there is no temple. It says the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so John is looking for and expects to see a brick and mortar building, a temple like he's always seen, since he began following Jesus around in that serious ministry. But it's not there because everything is the temple now. Everything. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are everywhere in this heaven, and they're an all-encompassing influence and spirit. So in the new Jerusalem, we are in the temple because he is the temple and we are in him. So imagine we're invited right into the middle of the triune God to be in the middle of the love of the Trinity, in the middle of the creator of the universe and all the cosmos. So right now, maybe tonight, if we look at a sunset and we think, oh, that's beautiful, I just want you to know in this location that sunset will be insignificant to how beautiful it is. We should acknowledge that we're all called to this now because of the separation I mentioned in the fall we fail. The apostle Paul speaks to us over and over about what it is to be in Christ. In a couple of quick examples in Philippians 1:21, Paul tells us to live as Christ and to die as gain. So to live for him in this world is the highest calling because someday we'll fully live in him in the heavenly realm. To be so focused on God, to be so like-minded with Jesus, to be so congruent and synonymous with him, as Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, is to have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ means that we'll think like him, we'll love like him, and we'll become more like him. Verse 23 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So as we've discussed, in Genesis 2, we were initially placed into a garden as the ideal setting, but God in his infinite love gave us choice, and with choice comes sin, and because of sin, man was expelled from the garden to protect us. And then in just nine chapters in Genesis 11, man in his arrogance tries to show God that we don't need him anymore and they create what's called the city of Babel. And I want, you to, I want to point out that in scripture, city after city becomes corrupted. And think Sodom, think Gomorrah, Bethsaida, Nineveh, Chorazim, Capernaum, the list goes on and on and on about cities who become arrogant and forget about God. Because man's influence is self-centered and not God-centered. Here in Revelation, God only provides two cities. He speaks of Babylon, representing the corrupted city of man, and he speaks of the New Jerusalem, a city created just for his believers, for us. The New Jerusalem is like no city we've ever seen before. Because it says, if you'll notice, the sun and the moon. It doesn't say they don't exist, it says has no need. So what in the world could that possibly mean? It, it means that the sun and moon are no longer bright objects in the sky because they're overshadowed by the glory of God and the lamp that is Jesus. And other examples in scripture about, about um, God being light are 1 John 1.5, where it says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. James 1:17 says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. John 8:12 again Jesus spoke to them so this is Jesus speaking I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of the light the light of life. And of course let's not forget in the beginning right Genesis 1 verse 2 and darkness is over the face of the deep. And in the next verse, verse 3, it says, let there be light. If we thought about it for a little bit, without light and heat from the sun, our world would shrivel and die in days. Without the moon and the way its gravity pulls and releases the oceans, they too would stagnate and die. God put the sun and the moon and the stars up like streetlights for us, for our benefit and for his glory. But in this new city, God is all the light, all the gravity, all the energy we need, because His light is His love for us, and that light is powerful beyond comprehension. Because His perfect love and perfect light are so powerful that we can't be that it can't be face to face with anything imperfect like we are. So I hope I'm not going out on a limb here in saying that honestly, it it it. Brought tears to my eyes to see Joe back up here and sing. And Alyssa too. And it was it was really beautiful um, for a lot of reasons. It's been a long time since Joe's been able to join us. And he sang a song called Rock of Ages. <clears throat> and in that song, there's two verses that I just wonder if, everybody, um, if anybody dwells on. And those verses are rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You ever wonder what that means? I mean, if, if if you haven't studied the Bible, if you haven't read kind of deeply, those verses may seem a bit odd. And so I would just want those who don't know to, to realize that this song is about Jesus. But those two verses are actually talking about Moses and his desire to be face-to-face with a living God. Because in Exodus 33, verses 21 through 23, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Do you see that? You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Some versions translate that not as my, you shall see my back, but as you shall see the tip of my robe. So this is a minimal, this is a a tiny little glimpse that God allows Moses to have in protection. And the story goes that Moses at this point is a reluctant prophet. And he tells God to come back down the mountain with him to prove to the people that that he, that God is real, and the Ten Commandments that God has just given him are not from Moses, but from God himself. But the most God can allow is to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock, cover him with his mighty hand, and at the last moment, let Moses have the tiniest peak of his back. And as a demonstration of God's power, later when when Moses has come down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Scripture says in chapter 34, verse 29, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Just talking with God made Moses shine. To be in God's presence is to see perfection then. It's too powerful for us in these sin-stained bodies. Moses would instantly be killed if he'd seen God, but because he was near him, just, just near him, he began to take on some of God's characteristics. And as believers of God, that should be our desire, to take on God's characteristics. In John 12, 36, Jesus is talking about himself. When he says to a group of people, while you have the light, himself, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is really talking to us there. Jesus is telling us to follow him so we can become like him and be with him in the new Jerusalem. Jesus then can be seen while God can't, because God sent Jesus to us as a buffer. Jesus is God in the flesh, believing in him, being near to him, helps us take on the character and characteristics of Jesus. But because that imperfection I mentioned, we're not yet ready to be bathed in God's pure light. So try to think about this. If on one side of a door is a is darkness and on the other side of the door is light. If you open the door, does any darkness spill into the light room or does only light spill into the dark room? Of course dark doesn't go into the light room at all because it's it's not a 50-50 push. It's not they're not two sides of the same coin. Darkness is actually the It's not the opposite of light, it's the absence of light. And so darkness in our lives is like sin, visible when the light doesn't penetrate into us. And this is why the sun and moon are no longer needed, because God's pure light leaves no shadow. (sighs) By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Kings back then served as leaders and models of their nations. Their personality was said to be the personality of their kingdom. A kind and empathetic king was thought to have a kind and empathetic kingdom. A rough and aggressive king or an insecure king or frail king was thought to bring about the same traits in their nation and citizens. The king was supposed to represent the best of his culture, and to assemble kings together was in an important sense an attempt to bring together a national identity. Now we don't have kings in this country, but for reference we have presidents, right? And so whether it's President Trump or President Biden or none of the above that you respect, the news will constantly point out that their temperament, whoever holds office, their outlook is a reflection of the country as a whole. That's what it was like back then with kings. And when John writes here that all the nations will be present and bring honor and glory, what he's saying is that all these nations, all people across the globe will have value. We're all made in his image, every single person, every you, every me, every them, every they. When you watch the news and if you see somebody on the news that frustrates you, they're made in God's image too. And this here says he's going to bring all the nations together. So the people that frustrate you most might be just the people that fill heaven the most as well. God also telling us that he wants us to follow the right king, which is him. And if we do follow him, we will be citizens in the new Jerusalem together. And on the nations discussion. The same news cycle currently is full of hate and racial strife and pride. I'm so thankful for what Danny said about pride and misery. And I don't, I don't know, but if there's anybody that has an ideology that says one person is better than another, then they're not understanding God's kingdom. See, in heaven, there's no white pride or brown pride or any pride at all. There's just God, and he brings us all together because we all represent him and his image. And it says, and the gates will never shut. It actually says, never be shut by day because there is no night, which means they'll never shut, right? In scripture, being outside the city was a violent and scary place. Cities were walled and gated, not to keep people in, but to keep them out. Scripture refers over and over to city walls and night watchmen who would be on the lookout for marauders and armies looking to conquer them. The New Jerusalem, however, doesn't need to shut its gates because it can't be conquered. Its victory is final. Which brings me to point number two, God cares about you intimately. And how do we know this? Because he tells us in the next verse, in verse 27, it says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now that might seem like an odd way for God to tell you that he loves you intimately, but imagine living thousands of years ago and the world you knew then was really a world full of disease and famine. People starved and looked for food every day of their existence. When well, in the book of Leviticus, God handed down laws to protect his people from the unseen realm of the spirit world, but also the unseen realm of microorganisms and bacteria. You see, if you read Leviticus, God had people wash their hands. He forbid them from touching dead things. He told them to keep distance from diseased people. He told them not to eat certain foods that were prone to spoil easily. And that's because that was at a time when the smallest things that existed in most people's world, in their mind, were things they could tangibly see or touch. So they didn't understand bacteria, they didn't understand microorganisms. But God's laws of cleanliness were there for them. Now. They probably didn't make sense, but it wasn't necessarily important for them to understand everything. It was important for them to follow God and follow scripture because that's what kept, kept them healthy and clean. Now he tells us in the new city, there's nothing to worry about because nothing unclean, nothing dirty can enter, nor can anyone enter who does things that are detestable or false And so what that means, imagine a place where there's no lies, which means there's no liars. There's no greed. There's no drama. I'd like to think there's no social media, but I'm going out on a limb on that one. Um, There's nothing unclean. And as it points out at the end, the only ones in the city are in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now we know Jesus is the Lamb, and that's the book he keeps, so that's the book that the names are written in it in the color of red. And red is because the writing is in, in Jesus' blood. And I imagine that next to each name it says things like accepted, forgiven, welcome to your forever home. Revelation 22, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2a. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city of the street. Jesus and the Father here are at the center of this picture where the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flow from the throne through the middle. Jesus refers to himself as the water of life in Scripture many times. In John 4, Jesus goes to a well in the middle of the day at a time of day reserved for what a lot of people might refer to as the low lives. See, no self-respecting rabbi, no self-respecting Jew would have gone to a well in the heat of the day. They would have gone in the cool morning time or in the cool evening time. But Jesus goes in the middle of the day specifically to meet the Samaritan woman. And he does another thing that's completely unexpected of Jewish rabbis. He engages her in conversation. Most rabbis in that day would have ignored her and shunned her and kept their distance from her as unclean. But Jesus didn't do that. He goes right up to her. And during their conversation, he says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, meaning the water in the well. But whoever brings the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In this scene, in this moment, Jesus is inviting somebody that the rest of the Jewish world thinks is unworthy. And he looks at her and he says, you are worthy. He invites a lowly Samaritan to the very place that we're talking about today, the place described in Revelation 21. And later in John seven, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now the interesting thing is that I've heard that quoted a number of times. There's a popular television personality, he uses that verse a lot. And I don't think he knows what he's, the way he's using it. Because verse 39, Jesus tells us that the living water he's talking about is actually the Holy Spirit. So if we go back to those original verses there, what Jesus is saying is that in the New Jerusalem, God and the Lamb, God and Jesus are on the throne at the center, and out of them flows the Holy Spirit as our helper. <clears throat> and the second part of verse two says, "'Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations.' So you see, we're actually going back to a garden-like existence. As we saw in verse 27 though, this garden is better than the original Garden of Eden. And the reason I know that is because the original garden had temptation, and this garden doesn't. It's a garden in the center of a new Jerusalem. Of a, it, it's like a beautiful park that feeds and sustains in a city God created for us to live with him in perpetuity. And in this new city, in this perfected city, God invites us back in, and we will routinely partake of Him. Because you notice these trees, they're not like our trees. Our trees have a season. We have a harvest. These trees have a harvest every month. There is no winter in the New Jerusalem. And now the the part that I studied and struggled the most in all these verses was the part where it says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Because maybe like me, you wondered, well, why would we need healing in heaven, right? That part really confused me. So you'll, you'll just have to take it for my word. I, I studied and read and called and asked people. And you know what I came up with, the answer? I don't know. I mean, I wish I could get up here and tell you authoritatively, this is what it means, but I don't. But I I can tell you that I think Pastor Chris helped out tremendously last week when he um, exposed us to the term present progressive. And what present progressive means is that Jesus is making all things new and will continue to make things new for us into the future. And so for contrast on this earth, when you buy a new car, new car smell doesn't last that long, does it? Especially for how much those cars cost. You buy a new album and the music sounds so good and fresh early on. But after a while, it it gets old and you yearn for something new. You get in a relationship. It's exciting. It's electric. But after a while, the electricity starts to fade a little bit. Except for Linda and I. Um, (laughs) Later. Um, But Things don't get old in the New Jerusalem, and that's because Jesus is an inexhaustible well, right? He keeps referring to himself as living water. Jesus is a fountain, and we get to slip right into that fountain. And so do the nations, which is a way of saying all of God's people. And then the leaves. That's the hard part, right? So since this is heaven, the leaves can't mean to cure my sore throat. I'm just going to eat a leaf because you're not going to have a sore throat. And so what what if what it means is that our world has been so ugly, so bent by sin and hate and war that the nations can gather and get better and things will never degrade or get old, but continue to just get better and better as we gather under the canopy created by the leaves of the tree of life. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the best part right there. That's it. That's the money shot, ultimately. Because they, we, will see his face. It's full stop. We don't need to go any further, really, because we're going to see his face. You see, Moses in that time didn't get to see God's face. But because we'll have glorified, resurrected bodies, physical bodies, the new temple is going to be different for us. The curse from Genesis is lifted here, and God's name is going to be on your forehead. Not physically, but symbolically. Everyone will look at you, and they will know that you have been bought by the King of Kings. His son Jesus paid an incredibly great price, a priceless price, and God covets you as his beloved. And his perfection, God's perfection in this time, will be imputed. That means assigned as a characteristic and be absorbed into your physical body. So the scripture says, Moses shone, you're going to shine. And you're not going to just shone a little. You're going to shine a lot because you're going to be with God forever. And in his presence, you're going to get brighter and brighter. About that presence in the New Jerusalem, Pastor Matt Chandler says, The imputed righteousness that's true about you spiritually actually becomes true about you physically in a way that's not true about you. I think what what Matt Chandler here is saying is that in the New Jerusalem, Jesus' work is complete. He said it is done on the cross, and he meant it because he changed everything, but here it's done done. He is covering our sins now, but in the Holy City in the New Jerusalem, he'll no longer need to cover our sins because sin will be no more. Which leads me to number three. So this is the other best part. Jesus is coming back, he promises. Verses six and seven say, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And these are Jesus' words here. Don't miss that. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus is trustworthy and true. He has done and will do exactly what he says and he says he's coming soon. Over the years, there've been a lot of people who have said, ah, I got my calculator out, my abacus and a slide rule, and Jesus is coming back on August 13th, 1900 and, or December 4th, 2000 and. And I don't understand how they can do that because in Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus prepares his followers and tells them that he's leaving, and in his absence, things are gonna get tough. But it's okay because he's gonna come back for them when the time is right. And his followers, they all wanna know, when's that gonna happen, Jesus? And he says to them, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So John was there. He was there for that talk, he was there for that speech, and he knows what Jesus says, and he knows that Jesus is trustworthy and true. And because he knows that, if anybody says they know when Jesus is coming back, I would just kindly, sweetly, politely suggest they read Matthew 24, verse 36 again, because they don't. But what I do know is that today, we're a little bit closer to Jesus returning than we were yesterday. And so every day we live is a good day, because every day of our existence, we're one day closer to Jesus coming back. In 1927, a little redheaded girl named Nadine was born to unknown parents and given up for adoption. I don't know why they gave her up, and I probably never will but I do know that she was adopted by parents who were Quakers named Raymond and Florence Moon. And Raymond was said to be a kind man working as a farmer in a small town in Texas, eventually getting a job with the railroad and moving the entire family to Denver. Florence, the mom, was a quiet and uncomfortable woman, and rumor has it she was easily swayed. The Moons were very strict parents. And as an example, Nadine had an older sister named Edith that Nadine never met. And that doesn't sound right. There's something wrong there, right? But Nadine never met her because the moons sent Edith back to the orphanage and threatened Nadine with, if you act up, we'll send you back to the orphanage just like we did Edith. Honestly, I don't know how a parent could threaten a child like that but it helps me understand Nadine and her insecurities a little bit better. Now, as far as I know, Edith lived and died without ever seeing any of that family again. I like to think that she was adopted by a loving family, but I honestly don't know. And the only reason I know any of this story is because Nadine is my dad's mom and my grandma. And it's those kinds of trauma that form people into adults with quirks. And I imagine my grandma's childhood was just tremendously full of fear, much like the Christians in John's day and like many of us living today. So one of my grandma's cute quirks that I can talk about, though, is that she liked happy endings, like Revelation is for us and I hope was for her. And so to assure herself of a happy ending, my grandma would read the first chapter of a book to see if it could hold her attention, and then read the last chapter to see if it had a happy ending. And only then, only if she read the first chapter and the last chapter, and it met her criteria, would she commit to reading the entire book. That's the kind of thing that fear and trauma does to somebody. It affects you long into your adulthood. And so you're thinking, ah, cute story, how is this relevant, right? Well, our Bible has many chapters. And I think a lot of us have probably opened it up at that first chapter and read Genesis. And maybe we got through it and maybe we didn't. And if you've come here on Sunday with us for the last year, congratulations, we're almost done with the book of Revelation. But only reading Genesis and Revelation is a little bit like Nadine reading the first and last chapter of all those books and somehow thinking she understood how the story was gonna go. Make no mistake, Revelation is the happiest of endings, but the rest of the story is important and needs to be known. I'm not sure if you were aware, but the book of Revelation has 404 verses in it. And did you know that it contains 278 allusions to the Old Testament? And that's a conservative estimate. I found another uh, biblical scholar who said it contains 500 allusions to the Old Testament. That's incredible. Can you imagine John, can you imagine his audience knowing the Old Testament that well, that every time John used that symbology and used those numbers, that they just knew what it meant? Well, John is is writing in a language that we recognize, but we don't understand. For instance, if we were transported 2,000 years into the past and like we do here at King's Cross after church a lot of us get together for dinner and let's say we, we picked in and out and somebody said to John oh Jonesen for a double a double I'm pretty sure John would have recognized the language but he wouldn't have understood the message and so that's why church and study alone and together and knowledge of scripture is so important because right here these are Jesus's words where he says quote keep the words of prophecy and how can we do that if we don't know what the words and the prophecies are? Revelation 21, 21, which is the last verse that Pastor Chris finished with last week. I'm gonna steal from him a little bit, I have permission. But that verse says, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. So in last week when Pastor Chris talked about the new Jerusalem coming down, and streets of gold, and the 12 precious stones, and all those beautiful imagery. It wasn't exactly like the Bugs Bunny cartoon, right? I mean, there wasn't bugs with a harp floating around on his cloud, having a good time, inviting people up. That's not what heaven looks like. But I would draw your attention here to the 12 gates and the 12 pearls. Because as as we've covered, gates represent security and safety. And 12 represents apostles, and 12 represents the tribes of Judah. Imperfect as the apostles, imperfect as the apostles and tribes were. And we're told that these gates will never be closed because sin and death have been defeated and nothing bad can enter anymore. So they're symbolic. But pearl, let's, let's, let's talk about a pearl Most of you may know, but not everybody, but what is a pearl? It's a little piece of sand, it's an impurity that finds its way into an oyster. Now the oyster could expel it, but it doesn't. What the oyster does is it takes that piece of sand and it it coats it, and it makes it less abrasive with part of itself. And it does this slowly over time, it invests in that piece of sand. And over time, that piece of sand becomes beautiful and ready to be presented and cherished. I think that's what God's offering us, to be a part of him so he can refine us. And I recognize that sometimes that refinement is fire, but sometimes just like the pearl, it's slow and with care. And in the process, he makes us more lustrous like him. And so God has given us his son so that we can see what we should look like. And he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can be guided and strengthened. And he's given us his word so when we're down or fearful or sad or worse, we can look at those words and he says, I'm coming soon. And when he does, it's going to be glorious. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast.